Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zivi. I'm the host, Zivi Owens. I am an author. My latest is blank, pub date March 1st, a novel. I'm also a podcaster, obviously, a publisher, a bookstore owner, and so much more. If you love books, you're in the right place. In fact, we call it the Ziviverse, or really, the LA Times called it the Ziviverse, and we're going with it. Go to ZiviOwens.com to learn more and follow me on Instagram at ZiviOwens. Chris Kander is the author of The Young of Other Animals, a novel. By the way, Chris and I will be on the Ziviverse tour together at an event in Houston at Brazos Bookstore. So check out my website, zippyowens.com, for more details on that. Chris is the USA Today bestselling author of A Gracious Neighbor, The Weight of a Piano, which was named an Indie Next great read in both hardcover and paperback, and which the New York Times called Immense, Intense, and Imaginative. Whisper Hollow, also named an Indie Next Great Read, and Eleven Stories, named by Kirkus as one of the best books of 2013 and winner of the Independent Publisher Book Awards for Fiction. She also wrote the children's picture book The Word Burglar and the Audible Originals Eddies and Grieving Conversations. Her new novel is The Young of Other Animals. Candor's fiction has been published in 12 languages. She lives in her native Houston with her husband and two children. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for coming back on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss The Young of Other Animals, a novel. Congrats. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me back on. You're welcome. And I blurbed this book. I'll have you know. <laughs> and I'm so grateful for it. And I'm so happy that you loved it. Um, it was so neat reading it too after our last podcast where you talked about what had happened to you personally. 
And then to be able to read how you fictionalized all the things that came after, then I found myself wondering what had happened with you versus the characters. And anyway, maybe I should back up and why don't you tell listeners what The Young of Other Animals is about? Well, it's, as you said, it was um, inspired by an event that happened to me when I was 19 in Spain. And it was something that I dealt with in my own way, but never really talked about. And I decided that I was ready to fictionalize it, not write it in a memoir because it was too close. It was like, I didn't want to get as close to that flame as memoir would have required me to do, but fiction I'm comfortable with. And so that was the inciting incident, a violent attack against a 19 year old young woman. But what came after that, what evolved from there was a much different story. Yes, that is the way that the book begins, but what evolves is really a complicated relationship between a mother and a daughter. Um, Mary is the mom. Paula is the 19-year-old daughter, college student. It's set in Austin, Texas in 1989. And they're both dealing with the recent death of Paula's father and Mary's husband, Frank. They're kind of lost in their own worlds of grief and bitterness And when Mary finds out and Paula reluctantly admits that she had been attacked, it brings up a lot of discord between the two of them. And what evolves is a revelation that Mary has her own reasons for having reacted so strongly to that. And so the two of them, along with the other characters in the book, are forced to confront their relationship. And It is that event and an ongoing threat of continued violence that forces the two to reconcile their relationship. And ultimately, it has a redemptive happy ending in spite of the dark themes that the book tackles. Wow. Well, I loved how you told the story from multiple perspectives and the mom and where she is in her life stage and then how she has to handle what comes next, her son in prison, also writing letters throughout the whole thing and getting out of prison. And like, what do you do with that? Right? <laughs> well, one character is in prison, but it's not Mary's son. It's not Mary's son. Okay. Okay. I, I got it wrong. I've read like a thousand books since you read this one. So <laughs> I'm so sorry. I mean- that you didn't get that one detail is completely fine. <laughs> I am so sorry. Okay, so talk about the character in prison and the letter writing. Okay, well, I don't want to create any spoilers, but there is an anonymous letter writer who is in juvenile detention, and he's writing to his mother in these interstitial letters throughout the book, and they are relevant. But if I tell you too much about them, it might give away an important spoiler. So okay. just know that those readers should know that those letters are there for a purpose. Okay. All right. Well, maybe what you unintentionally did was confuse the reader into thinking <laughs> that maybe they were a May reason. <laughs> well, they are intended to ask more questions than answer Okay. or pose more questions than answer. Okay. I'll just, we'll let that simmer. <laughs> Um, oh my goodness. So tell me about how you, like, why, why write from multiple perspectives? Why was this not just the daughters or like when, when you thought about taking this event and turning it into a novel, what happened then? And how did you end up with this, this form and this story? And where did Myri even come from? So, I mean, you being a, a novelist now as well, <laughs> um, you understand that a lot of these things just kind of evolve on their own. So when I started with that 
very difficult premise of I'm going to recreate the memory of an attack that I experienced, but I'm going to give it to someone so that I could examine it at a safe remove. That wasn't enough to make a compelling story. It's a compelling event, but Mm -hmm. not a story. So I had to start asking and interrogating questions. Well, who is this woman? Who is Paula? What is she doing at age 19 in 1989? And I wanted to set it in my home state of Texas so that I could, you know, examine it from a more, I don't know, a closer geographic perspective. What occurred to me was in Spain, and I don't know Spain well enough to write authoritatively about that setting in this situation. So, you know, just asking the questions about, well, what was she doing and what were her life circumstances? And I realized that she had obviously had to have parents. And what was really interesting is that her mother, Mary, spoke to me in my imagination and she announced that her name was Mary, not Mary, (laughs) Mary. And just her salt and sass came through in that moment. And I thought, this is a challenging personality. And I wanted her to be sort of a foil for Paula because I thought of Paula as being strong in her own way, but also full of self-doubt. I wanted her to be a bit more of a follower than a leader. She's got a best friend who is the stronger of the two in their relationship. And so her mother being this strong, kind of domineering old Texas woman, uh, though she's not old, but old Texas, that personality evolved. And I realized that, no, I mean, part of the reason that she's so salty is that she's been dealt a hand. Mm -hmm. What has she been dealt? And that led me to imagine her marriage to Frank. And I thought, Frank, had to have captured her heart in the beginning, but I don't think that he stayed a romantic partner in the way that she imagined. So it all just sort of fell into place with lots of imagination, just, you know, not necessarily writing, but thinking about them and imagining their circumstances and backgrounds and the conflicts that would arise in a situation like this. And knowing that Paula didn't want to tell anybody what happened the same way that I didn't tell anybody what happened to me. She told one person and that was her friend, just the same way I told one person. And yet her mother and the housekeeper that is practically a part of their family are the ones that discover the evidence that she had been attacked. And so, you know, that was something that Paula had to overcome. And in order for that to be relevant or a problem, there needed to be some backstory in Mary's history that would cause, you know, sparks to fly when the truth of that attack was brought to light. So it all just sort of evolved out of creative necessity, Mm -hmm. I think, just to create, you know, a compelling narrative that had some propulsion and dealt with things that I like to deal with. I like in my, all my fiction to deal with complex female characters, secrecy, family dynamics, and all of that sort of came out of this. Tell me more about, and I know we talked about this last time, but for listeners who don't know, you had this horrible attack. You told a friend, what was the relationship like with your mother? What did you tell her? And did you cut your hair off in real life? Or was that just a fictional thing? 
That was just fictional. I was finishing up my semester abroad and this attack, which was a violent attempt on my life after I had willingly gotten in a car with a stranger, I was able to go home shortly thereafter the program finished and I went back to Houston and I told no one, not my mother, not anyone. I buried it and I thought I could bury it even from myself. And I think the reason I did that is because I felt a certain degree of shame for having gotten in a car against, you know, anyone's better judgment. But I wanted to make a phone call and I gave Paula that same justification for getting in the car with her perpetrator in the novel. But because I felt a sense of shame and responsibility for my own attack, I didn't want anyone to know. I didn't want to talk about it at all. I didn't cut my hair, but I did just sort of go along in my life as though it didn't happen. But here's the twist. You can't hide those things from yourself. They live deep in your psyche somewhere. And what the way that I responded was to become physically incredibly strong. I took up competitive bodybuilding, became a firefighter. I got my pilot's license. I studied martial arts. I became a self-defense instructor. And it wasn't until I had maturity and time to look back and realize that I was building a physical fortress around myself because I never wanted this thing that had happened to me at age 19 to happen to me again. And I also didn't want it to happen to anyone else. So if I could interrupt that by teaching self-defense classes to women and, and girls, then that might make my experience worthwhile. And then one really interesting thing that happened as a result of writing this novel, the way that I did is, even though I teach my self-defense students that no attack is ever their fault, even if they, you know, do the things that you're not supposed to do, like go out into the world very distracted or, you know, go into unsafe places on your own, it's never their fault. And even though I can say that to other women, I don't think I had ever really processed in my own mind that what happened to me wasn't my fault. Mm. And so there was a really therapeutic element to finishing this book is that I could look at it and give myself forgiveness for having gotten into a car with a stranger. Because I had always thought, you know, if I, if I just hadn't done that, if I had been smart enough not to do that, this wouldn't have happened. And I don't look at it like that anymore. I look at it as, well, clearly I've turned it into something positive and now I can forgive myself and move on from there. Well, think about how young you were. When I went through it, obviously I felt like 19 was so old, but now having twins who are 16, I'm like, they're like babies. Totally. You know, like their judgment, they're not like full grown adults yet. Like they're just still going out in the world and everyone makes mistakes. I mean, everybody makes split second decisions and like, you don't have to necessarily have your life threatened because of them. Right. So I'm glad you have found that forgiveness. I feel like in the book, there's this recurring sort of PTSD, almost playback, right. Especially with the neck and the words that the perpetrator used that kind of stick with her. And she's like, Paula's marinating and like, can't escape them. You said you buried it. So did, did that not happen to you at all? Like you just somehow were able to like stop any sort of intrusive thoughts about it or you buried it in that 
you tried not to let things happen. You know what I mean? That's a, a really good question. I don't think I'm very good at compartmentalizing things. And so even the memory of the memories is fallible. And that was another thing that really interested me about writing this novel is exploring the failure of memory, especially under duress and thinking about the way that the human mind does, you know, immediately engage in in self-protection by, you know, shutting down certain physiological functions in order to focus on surviving, you know. And I was exploring that more through fiction than I remember experiencing in my own life, the idea that these intrusive thoughts would come back. But I did a lot of reading about memory and trauma and know that that is kind of a typical response that people will have these Mm -hmm. intrusive, either through dreams or, you know, some strange, unexpected moment, a, a thought will pop into their minds that they have to deal with, or they don't recognize it as a memory or a thought, but they feel a physical reaction to it. And so the best way in my thought process to display that in this book was to have it be intrusive thoughts. And so that's why I gave them to Paula, especially because the words that the perpetrator used were so mm-hmm. incredibly vile yeah. and those were words that my perpetrator used against me. And so I guess they were ironically oh. years later, they did come back, but in the form of fiction. So this must have been really emotional. I mean, even if you feel like you've made peace with it, like going down the darkest moments or maybe not the darkest, but a dark period and some very scary times, like how do you just sit down and do that? And then like, jump away from your computer and go off and do something else? Like, what was it like to really be reliving that and also have the present to deal with, with all of its demands? So the first thing I did was I wanted to write this out. Mm -hmm. I had never written it out before. And so I thought, if I'm going to create this narrative, I have to put this scene on paper first just to test it out. Mm -hmm. So I really created a specific set of conditions for doing that. I wanted to make sure my family was home, mm-hmm. that they weren't going to bother me. I wanted to strangely sit outside. I almost had this feeling like if I needed to run for my life, I could get up and run for my life as illogical as that is. And I had a cocktail. <laughs> because I wanted to make sure that I was just a little bit, not buzzed, but just kind of my fight or flight was suppressed just a tiny bit. Mm -hmm. So those three conditions, I created them. And then I sat down in an uninterrupted moment and wrote that whole scene. I ultimately broke it up. So you having read the book know that there is a really intense opening scene that begins with Paula fleeing the scene of the attack, but the Mm -hmm. attack itself doesn't appear in its entirety until midway through the book. But I wrote that whole thing at one time and I survived writing it. And obviously, and I thought, okay, I can do this. And once it was down on paper, it was almost as though I had kind of expunged it on some level, forcing myself to put it into words. And you know this as a writer, speaking words and writing words are different experiences. And you know, for whatever reason, it's easier for me to talk about something than to write about it. It's It becomes more tangible in the written form. And so once it was written, I was prepared to go forward with it. And I did have a real life to go back to. I had to go back inside and cook dinner and, you know, let the cocktail wear off. (laughs) And 
you know, and then I was able to proceed and it didn't feel quite as intimidating. In fact, it felt pretty liberating from that point. What was the cocktail? This is the most important question of all. Always. Um, vodka soda with a twist of lime. Amazing. Yeah. The <laughs> brand of vodka that you like? Edo's, of course. <laughs> I'm from Texas. <laughs> Will you be offering those on your tour? I should. I should just carry a handle around with me. <laughs> oh, I'll try to smuggle one on the plane on my way down to, to see you. Oh, I'll get you hooked up. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Or, or at the bookstore. Yes. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything it might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11, and it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help, and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. And tell me about the title and did you have any other titles? Was this always it? Tell me about that. Okay. Some titles, you know, will draw you in immediately and you kind of have an idea about what the book is about. But this one, in fact, I, I had the idea almost as soon as I decided to write the book. But ironically, it had nothing to do with the book at the time. I was and am a dictionary nerd. And so I will flip open a dictionary just for fun and read. And so I was, believe it or not, flipping through the Oxford English Dictionary, the second edition, volume two. And I was, you know, my 
last book that we talked about, A Gracious Neighbor, featured a parakeet. And I was kind of steeped in the bird world for a little bit. And so I opened up the definition of the word bird, and it was four pages long. And there was one obsolete definition that caught my eye, and it was from 1495. And it was a translation of something from Middle English, but it was an excerpt in the source text was, all fish feed and keep their birds, B-Y-R-D-E-S. And the fact that Middle English speakers would refer to fish offspring as birds was interesting enough, but what was even more compelling was, I think, just the phrase itself, just the, the lyricism of the phrase. And without the context, you know, what it called to my mind was just this, well, first of all, I felt this shimmer of kind of excitement about it because those five words conveyed just a sense of danger or vulnerability because in the natural world, the young within a species are likely to be cared for and protected while the young of other animals are typically prey. Mm. So I immediately thought about, you know, being preyed upon or being a predator and, you know, that the myriad relationships that could form between the implied elder of one species and the young of another. I was so interested in it and I thought it could be predatory, but it could also be, I don't know, symbiotic or protective or possessive even. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I really wanted to, you know, interrogate that more. And then as I started writing this book, I thought, wow, what makes certain animals, including humans, choose protection over predation. Mm. And as you know, because you've read the book, the theme of predation and protection recurs throughout the story among lots of different characters in their myriad relationships. And so I fought for that title. Originally, my editor, whom you also have as an editor. I love <laughs> Carmen. Love, love. She, she was, she questioned it, you know, mm-hmm. which is valid because it doesn't immediately take you in and describe the story. But I explained to her my thought, my reasoning behind it. And she fortunately was so gracious and said, I'm with you. I trust you. And so we got to keep it. And I'm happy that we did because I do feel like it has relevance to the, to the story. Well, it's also so intriguing. You know, I mean, you have to, you, you can't listen to that and think, uh, whatever, you know, if, if nothing else, you have to keep digging and figure it out. Versus right. something much more straightforward. So, and did you have input in your cover? I didn't have much input in my cover, but I love it. But tell me about your experience. Okay, well, I I did. I love this cover. There were several versions of the you know mother and daughter because it is ultimately a mother daughter story. Yep. But and the what never changed was the text and the typeface, which I love. I love the handwritten. It echoes yep. gracious neighbor, and also my book before that the weight of a piano. So I love the handwritten touch. There were some variations on how the two women were presented and the color scheme changed. And then so did the position one in profile and one facing Mm -hmm. forward. But ultimately I just fell in love with it. I love the pink. I think it's really catching. It is match it today, but yeah, I think it turned out beautifully and is really sort of, in addition to the title, kind of an evocative image that I think, you know, if I were looking at it, I would pick it up and wonder, what was this about? You know, the fact that there are two women of clearly different ages 
you know, kind of at a perpendicular stance to one another. What does that mean? Totally. Well, it's, it represents the intriguing nature of the interior and the story. And it's great when those align, but also gives you the chance to wear a lot of hot pink, which is lovely. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Are you working on another book? I have to ask. Yeah, vaguely. I, Mm I feel like I kind of like, just blew through the last three novels in a fabulous way. And then I only get one idea at a time. The universe does not shower me with ideas. And so I'm still waiting for my lightning bolt moment, but I do have, I have a character and a setting and a vague premise and a ghost, Mm. but I don't really have a whole lot more than that. And so I'm just going to let it marinate. I do keep getting little pop-up ideas. So I know it's, I know it's happening under the hood. I just haven't really started, you know, actually writing it yet. That's okay. You're excited. But I'm excited. You have a lot on your plate. (laughs) Books are launched. So exciting. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors aside from vodka sodas? Always. But I think this is something that someone asked me recently and I you know, the typical advice is read, read broadly, write, don't give up. But something that I, as a writer, now releasing my fifth novel, have really thought a lot about is what it means to me when someone emails me a note that tells me specifically how they connected with a book that I've written. And You know, as all authors do, that there are these, you know, inevitable crises of confidence and moments where we wonder if the project that we're working on is, you know, worth it, if it has a place in the world, if what we're doing is meaningful. And then occasionally, you know, an unexpected email will arrive that validates everything. And and it's not to say that external validation is the goal, because it's not. It should be intrinsic. And for the most part, it is. But my advice to aspiring writers is write to the authors that you love, whose books affect you. And then when you become a published writer and someone sends you a note, write back. That is fantastic advice that I have not heard before and is so important and so true. It makes all the difference. It's so it's amazing that we have this direct access When we grew up, it was not like that at all. And now just, I don't know. I remember getting my first email back from Jill Santopolo. I finished her book and I DM'd her and she wrote me right back. And I was like, oh my gosh, this has blown my mind. I'm still crying from her book. So yeah, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And it's also just, you know, it's wonderful to connect to people anyway. And writing can be so solitary, for most of us. And I think that just those moments of connection are so worthwhile. Yes. It doesn't have to be a long letter, yep. but just, Hey, this resonated with me and that is enough. That's enough. I love that. Excellent advice. Chris, thank you so much. I'm so excited to see you soon. And I can't wait to see you too. Oh my gosh. We're going to have fun. And your book, congratulations. So great. So emotional. Oh my gosh. And I just... I'm so, I mean, it sounds hokey to say proud of you, but I'm so happy for you that you were able to get this out on paper and just like out of your body and sort of into the world to officially sort of move on in, in, a, in a new way. So thank you. And I will accept that you're proud of me gratefully because it means a lot. And I yeah. thank you for your support. <laughs> okay.
All right. Thank you, Chris. You later. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.